Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hi, this is Stu Hodum with Believe in the Media Guide on the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? On Saturday, July 23rd, Tim Kirchin will receive the Baseball Writers Association of America Career Excellence Award. Last month, the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum hosted Kirchin as part of its virtual author series. In a conversation with Bruce Markusen, the Hall's Manager of Digital and Outreach Learning, Kirchin discussed growing up in Bethesda, Maryland, and starting his career in 1979 at the Washington Star. He says the great players and his passion for the game led him to Cooperstown. I have a part in the Hall of Fame now because of all the Hall of Fame players that I covered. And there is, of course, an enormous difference between a Hall of Fame baseball player and a five foot five inch, you know, dinky little baseball writer. But I love the game. I loved following those players all those years. And this has been a part of my life since as far, far back as I can remember. Kirkchen remembers the writers who inspired him as a boy and then as he grew in his career. This week, he'll join all but one Tom Boswell as BBWAA Career Excellence Award winners. When I was growing up, I read the sporting news from cover to cover. We also got Sports Illustrated at my house. I read that cover to cover. And I read the Washington Post and the Washington Star every day. So I read Shirley Povich growing up. I read Tom Boswell when I was a little bit older. And those are the guys that I kept reading saying, boy, these guys are great. I'll never be like these guys. And then when I got into the business and I started writing, I followed Dan Shaughnessy at the at the Washington Star. He was our baseball writer and I became the backup. So I watched the way that he did things. And then Peter Gammons, of course, when I started covering full time, I would read his stuff and think, to me, this is the greatest baseball writer of all time. I would read my pal Jason Stark, who had a, a slightly different way of looking at things than, say, Dan or Peter did. So those are just three guys that I read um, while I was in the business. But growing up, the formative years, uh, I couldn't get enough baseball, and I read everything I could get my hands on. For a man who cut and pasted box scores out of newspapers and into a notebook for 20 years, his love of print and the national pastime started with lists in Sunday newspapers. Every Sunday morning, we would look, my dad, my two brothers and I, we would look at those averages and to see who's leading the league and hitting at this moment and who's under 200 at this moment. Dan, Dan, Danny Age, who played the major leagues, of course, was a great NBA player also. He was looking at those averages one Sunday in the Celtics locker room as a player for the Celtics. And he showed the averages to all the Celtic players and told them, I told you this game was really hard to play. Look how many guys are hitting under 200. Those are the things that you used to get from those Sunday averages, and I miss them tremendously. 
Named for a Washington Senators Hall of Fame pitcher, Kirkshin's high school was the perfect place for him to begin to ply his trade. I always thought there was a little destiny involved that I went to a high school named after the greatest pitcher of all time, and he is the greatest pitcher of all time. A dear friend of mine said, Tim, if you'd gone to Sandy Koufax High School, then you would say Sandy Koufax is the greatest pitcher ever. No, Walter Johnson is the greatest pitcher ever. I played baseball and basketball there, but more important, I worked for the school paper there. It was called The Pitch. I did some work for the yearbook there. It was called The Windup. And... Uh, I just loved being at Walter Johnson for those three years. And, you know, Walter Johnson, you know, lived in the town next to the town I live in right now. He is buried one town over in another direction. And get this, he died on December 10th, 1946. And I was born on December 10th. 1956. So I have all these really cool connections to the greatest pitcher of all time. And I can't even begin to tell you how proud I am that I went to that high school. While Kirchin didn't get great reader reviews, his father supported his son. I was a terrible writer in high school. One of my gym teachers came up to me once and said, Tim, that might be the worst story I've read, ever read in the high school paper. I hope you're not planning on making this your life's work, which, of course, I did. Um, yes, when I left Walter Johnson, it was I said to myself, I am going to make a career somehow in baseball, in part because when I graduated, I was about five, two and a half, maybe 110 pounds. So my thought of playing in the big leagues or playing in the NBA, those days were long gone by my senior year in high school. So I said, all right, how am I going to get, how am I going to make a career in sports? And, you know, I went to the University of Maryland and I guess famously my, my oldest brother, Andy, who was a great college baseball player. And, and, he, and he also went to MIT undergrad, got a doctorate in electrical engineering, he had a chat with my dad, who also went to MIT undergrad. And my brother Andy said during my senior year in college, like, how is Tim going to make a living? How is he going to make it in life? He only really loves one thing, and that's baseball. So my dad said, don't worry, T Tim will figure it out. So I guess eventually I figured it out. It took me a long time to learn how to write. But it was always my love for the game, my passion for the game that kept me going. I, it wasn't a passion for writing. I don't love being on TV. I just love the game. I love being at the ballpark. And fortunately, that has carried me. Kirkjian credits his mother and his commitment to his craft for his writing success. As it turns out, I did have a, a gift. I just didn't know that I had it. My mom, my mother, Joy, was a great writer. She used to write the greatest letters. Her Christmas letter that she would send out to everyone was hysterically funny. She was brilliant. So she had, she gave me the writing gene. My dad taught me to love baseball. My mother taught me to, to, to love words. But if you want to be a good hitter, you got to take a lot of batting practice. If you want to be a good free throw shooter, you got to shoot a lot of free throws. And if you want to be a good writer, you have to write a lot. So that's what I did. I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. In high school, <laughs> this is pathetic. I would play like Stratomatic or APBA tabletop games all by myself while all my friends are out going out on a Saturday night. And I'm playing these tabletop games by myself. 
I'm kind of broadcasting them as I'm playing them. And then when the game's over, I would write about the game that I just played. So that's how I continued to get better eventually was I just kept writing and writing and writing. And like anything else, the more you do it, the better you get. Following his professional start at the Star, Kirkchin became the Texas Rangers beat writer for the Dallas Morning News in 1981. A couple of colorful characters welcomed him into his new role. Well, in spring training of that first year, Mickey Rivers came up to me, and I love Mickey Rivers. Mickey Rivers asked if he could borrow $2,000 from me. (laughs) I said, Mick, I'm making $14,000 a year. I don't have $2,000 to my name. I can't lend you any money. I don't have any money. That was my first spring with the Rangers, and it was wonderful. The guys I met that spring, Charlie Huff for the first time, Buddy Bell, Larry Parrish, Al Oliver, it was tremendous. And the key was Don Zimmer was the manager. And Zim, he, I guess he recognized that I was like 14 years old. I looked like I was 10. I was totally overmatched in a lot of things because I was five foot five and I weighed 130 pounds, but he recognized pretty quickly. All right. I don't know if this guy knows what he's doing, but he sure loves baseball. So the Rangers had, had lost 11 games in a row and it was May. And I staggered into Zim's office in May with some haggard look on my face. And this was a very important moment in my career. So Zim looks at me and he goes, what's wrong with you? And I said, well, Zim, I must say covering this team hasn't been as much fun as I thought it would be. So he looked at me and I'm quoting here. He said, ah, quit complaining. Look at yourself. You're young. You're good looking. You got your whole life in front of you. He said, look at me. I'm old. I'm fat. I'm bald. I'm ugly. I got a plate in my head and I've got this team to manage. I'm the one with all the worry. So why don't you quit complaining and why don't you understand how lucky you are to be covering Major League Baseball every day at your age? And that I didn't need to be reminded. I really didn't. I knew right away how fortunate I was. But when, you know, baseball's Buddha, you know, Don Zimmer you know, gives you that little lecture, you turn around and say, well, you're absolutely right. I was the most fortunate man in the world to be at that age, coming to a major league team. And I never, I never complained another time after that. In 1986, Kirkchen joined the Baltimore Sun and shared a basketball connection with two future Hall of Famers on the Orioles while covering the second season of Earl Weaver's return to the dugout. Eddie Murray didn't like me. I can tell you that. Um, We did talk basketball. He loved basketball, and so do I. So we could talk basketball occasionally. But whenever then I transitioned to asking him baseball questions, a lot of times he just kind of whisked me away. That was just Eddie's way. Um, I don't think it was anything personal. I sure hope not. I know he got mad at me for something I wrote once, and he went years without talking to me. But none of that is the point, Bruce. I covered a Hall of Fame first baseman, one of the greatest switch hitters of all time. And Earl Weaver said during Eddie Murray's rookie year, he's like two months in, he tells all the beat writers, this is going to be a Hall of Fame player. Two months into his major league career, that's what Earl saw in Eddie, and Eddie and I had a rocky uh, relationship. I'm not proud of that, by the way. I think we've all patched it up, so that's good. As for Cal Ripken, I, I think I'm going to have to say I have a 
I've written more words about Cal Ripken than I've written about any person in all the years that I've covered. He, I got to know him really well. He let me into places like his house and his car and his workout facilities and all that, that not everyone was invited to. I played basketball with him many times, which is a raging conflict of interest. I shouldn't have done that, but it was fascinating nonetheless. So covering Cal Ripken every day was so, so revealing for me. And I'm just going to say it one time. I'm not angry. I'm not angry at anybody else, but he was the best player. He was the best shortstop they had every single night. And people who think that streak was selfish and he shouldn't have done that, I was there for four of those years. He should have played every game, and he did. And he went three years without missing an inning. And that night in Toronto, 1987, the Orioles were losing like 18 to four. And the the Blue Jays hit 10 homers that night, Bruce, a major league record, 10 homers in one game. And I'm writing the story for the Baltimore Sun that the Orioles got clobbered and became the first team ever to give up 10 homers. And then I looked out on the field and Cal Ripken was not running to shortstop. So for the first time in three and a half years, he came out of a game. His father took him out of the game because the team, the general manager, Hank Peters, who I love, said, look, this is not worth, uh, he can play in every game. He doesn't have to play every inning. Let's give him a rest. So I had two of the biggest stories I've ever had to deal with. And they both happened at basically 10 o'clock at night. And my story was due at 1020. That's what we call working on deadline." From The Sun, Kirchin went to Sports Illustrated and then ESPN, where he's worked since 1998. While he feared the transition from print to TV, his baseball beat experience was the best training ground. Well, I thought it was really difficult, but fortunately, my beat writer newspaper days trained me to do that. Beat writing taught me to write quickly, to write on deadline. It taught me where the story is and how to get the story. Then I just had to change how I presented it on the air, which was not easy. You know, I'm used to writing a, you know, a 25 inch game story, 25 paragraphs, let's say. Now I have to make my point in 30 seconds and get the heck out of there. You have to be a lot more efficient on TV. So my writing days prepared me to be a writer. When I went to ESPN, I you know, I thought they were going to teach me how to do this. Like, are you guys going to show me how to do TV? And they said, no, there's no time. You're a writer. You'll figure it out. And they just popped me right on. Uh, it was difficult. And, you know, I spent a fortune on clothes, you know. <laughs> I was a baseball writer. I'm sitting next to Harold Reynolds, who's wearing a $2,000 suit. Um, I... I, you know, spent a lot of time walking around in a circle talking to myself, which I didn't often do as a baseball writer. And I started wearing more makeup than my wife because that's what television called for. So there were a lot of adjustments along the way, but I will say this about TV. I've really enjoyed it, really enjoyed it because of the spontaneity. All right. The game is over. We're on live TV and I get to talk about the World Series right now. At Sports Illustrated, I would have to wait a whole week to see the work that I did. Even at a newspaper, I would have to wait till the next morning to see my work. It was so it is so rewarding to do television and be able to weigh in on something right now. Which is harder for Kirkchen, writing or broadcasting? Writing is still the hardest thing that I have to do. 
And that's why it's the most rewarding job that I have is because it is so difficult. There are days I sit down and I tap it out and I look at it and go, this is terrible. And I have to start all over or I have to polish it a thousand times in order to make it better. So writing for me is always, always harder. But, you know, being on TV is not an easy thing to do. And I'm not uh, I'm not underestimating that. I get nervous once in a while still, especially if I don't know what I'm talking about. That's why I try to prepare for everything I'm doing. So I do know what I'm talking about. Kirchin returns to the players being the thing that makes baseball great today. The best part of the game is, as it always is, the players. But the difference with the players now is this. I have never seen this many big, strong, fast, young, athletic players. I have never seen an influx of this many great, young, big, fast stars that have come in the last 10 or 11 years, starting with with Mike Trout and Bryce Harper. And ever since then, the, the people that we see on a daily basis, the first time I saw Aaron Judge, I went, oh my gosh. I saw Wander Franco for the first time a couple of years ago. I couldn't believe he was only 19 years old with a body like that. Fernando Tatis Jr., the first time I met him, I couldn't believe how tall he was and to be able to move like that. That's the best part of the game is just how how physically gifted the players are. And that's not to say they understand how to play the game like Paul Moder, George Brett, Robin Yount, Cal Ripken. I don't think they play the game the same way. But when it comes to overpowering the game with your physical gifts, I've never seen anything like I've seen the last 12 years or so. Kirkchen's call to Cooperstown came last December in a grocery store as he found out that he had topped fellow finalist Marty Noble, a New York baseball beat reporter, and Baseball America founder Alan Simpson for the greatest honor any baseball writer could receive. There were only three of us up for it, so I knew I had a chance, but yes, I was surprised. And it sure didn't help that I was so nervous that I decided to kill some time that morning. So I, I went to the grocery store, as I do like every day, because I'm the most inefficient shopper in the world. So I was in line at the Harris Teeter uh, self-serve aisle, and I was like dragging a rotisserie chicken across the, the, the scanner there when I got a call from Jack O'Connell mm-hmm. of the Baseball Writers Association. Now, I did know that Jack only calls you if you win. So I went, oh my goodness, I have to take this call. So he called me, he gave me the sensational news. And then I just started to cry in the middle of the Harris Teeter. So that's how I found out. Uh, I'm not sure any other baseball writer found out the same way that I did. Another call from the man he would pair with Johnson as a battery mate was a highlight for Kirkchen. The next morning was probably the highlight At 8.30 the next morning, Johnny Bench called me at my house on my cell phone. Johnny Bench. And he said, congratulations, Tim. Welcome to the club. You're one of us now. And let's be clear, I'm not in their club. I'm not one of them. But still, the greatest catcher of all time, in my mind, called me to congratulate me. Doesn't get a whole lot better than that. Kirkchen didn't write his speech on deadline and hopes to get additional feedback from the Hall Vice President of Communications, John Shestakovsky, so he nails the landing on Saturday. 
Well, I've already written it and I've, I've gone through it in my head many, many times. I drive a lot around a lot, driving to games and everything else. So I usually take some time to try to do my speech while I'm driving the car without reading it. Cause I don't want to read it. I want to be able to just speak it. Uh, I sent it to Shesta and he, I'm just quoting here. He sent me back and said, this is excellent. I'm waiting for just a few suggestions from him on, uh, either tightening it up or adding a few things or subtracting a few things. Um, I'm pretty happy with it at the moment, but I must tell you, even though I've been out in, in front of people for a long time, I, I've never been nor more nervous in my life about anything. I am scared to death at the thought of standing up at the Hall of Fame and making a speech. I, I hope, I just pray it works out because if it doesn't, I will never forgive myself. To express his surprise at being enshrined at the Hall of Fame, Kirchin recalls a player as he's done throughout his life and career, standing on the shoulders of literal and figurative giants of the game. You know, my friends say, you know, you, you know you're going to be in the Hall of Fame for the rest of your life. You know, your picture's going to be in there. I just, I just can't, I just can't think that way. It's just, it's just too overwhelming for me. And mostly... I think about what Cal Ripken said the night that he broke Lou Gehrig's record for consecutive games played. One of his seminal quotes from that game was, I can't believe this is happening to me. And as we all know, it could only happen to Cal Ripken given the way that he played the game. But I wake up a bunch of times in the middle of the night thinking about July 23rd and I, I ask myself, this can't be happening to me. We've enjoyed several slices from the virtual author series conversation, and I would encourage you to check it out on the Hall's YouTube page, as Kirchin tells stories about his favorite player, Willie Mays, his favorite manager to cover, Weaver, and his high school connection with a Seinfeld supporting player. Thanks for listening to Believe in the Media Guide. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes, and find us wherever you get podcasts, including Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V dot com. I'm on Twitter at Hotem, H-O-T-H-E-M as in Mary. Stay tuned and stay safe. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.